Hey everybody, it's Bob. I just want to catch you up on a little bit of housekeeping we have going on here this week. We were supposed to be doing the movie Almost Famous as our episode this week, and when we went to watch the movie, we found out that Brad actually watched a different cut of the film than I watched. He watched the almost three-hour director's cut, I watched the theatrical cut. Neither of us has seen the version the other one has seen, and this was also Brad's first time seeing the movie. And so we talked for a long time about whether we could kind of make an episode work with that scenario. We didn't think we could really do it. And we didn't have time to go back and watch both of the alternative cuts. And I want to be able to give Brad a chance to kind of get this movie out of his head because the impression that's in it is of a director's cut that, you know, is probably a little bit too long. So we're actually bumping up next week's episode, This is Spinal Tap, to this week. We're going to push Almost Famous back, hopefully into next season. I really am excited to get around to that one, but I wanted to let you guys know what was going on. I know some of you have written to us saying like what happened almost famous. It is still on the docket, but it's going to be kind of delayed for a while while we move This Is Spinal Tap up to this week. Thanks, guys. In 1984, director Rob Reiner gave the world a rockumentary that was sure to shock and awe audiences around the globe. In 2020, Heaven Hill gives us a bourbon that they call the Kickin' Chicken. The film is This Is Spinal Tap. The whiskey is Fighting Cock. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1984 comedy, This Is Spinal Tap. We are right in the middle, Brad, of a little mini-series we're doing on films about musicians. And I have been pumped to talk about this movie. Like, it, Brad, it's been probably 15 years since I've seen this movie, and in that time... I feel like my whole comedy like vantage point has changed because I started watching The Office and Parks and Rec and I went back to Spinal Tap and I have just been blown away at how much this is right in the wheelhouse of those shows. Bob, the most important thing I want to make clear right now is that you watched this movie as a 14-year-old? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Brad, I'm I'm a cultured individual. I don't know about you. <laughs> you know what Stonehenge is? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, Bob, this movie absolutely blew my socks off. But more importantly, Bob, I I think that this might have been the start of the mockumentary style of filmmaking, and I absolutely adore it with every inch of my soul. Yeah, man, I am such a fan of this movie. I can't wait to get into talking about it. But in order for us to do that, we need to bring somebody else into this, Brad. We have a special guest host today. It's our friend Perry Ritter from This Is My Bourbon podcast. Perry, how are you today? Bob, Brad, first off, I am just very excited to be here with you guys. And second off, I'm doing great, man. I I, I get to talk about a movie that really I have this old affinity for. And and um, upon rewatching, have some things to say, but we'll, we'll get into that and get to drink some really good whiskey. And I'm just excited to be welcomed into this space i've been a fan of film and whiskey basically since you guys started uh, so it, it's nice to finally kind of meet up and and cross paths and uh make something make something happen here yeah man we're excited to have you we we've been talking kind of on and off for 
the better part of a year about bringing you on the oh, show. Yeah. <laughs> and and as soon as that tells you a lot about both of our organizational skills, but <laughs> but as soon as we had penciled in this series about musicians, I was like, oh, I have to get Perry on here. Absolutely. And and Perry, just you know, for our audience who may not be familiar with you or with your podcast, can you you know introduce us to yourself a little bit? You definitely are a musician. I've seen you <laughs> playing am. guitar before, so you you bring <laughs> some expertise to the table here. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, so I, I am the host of This Is My Bourbon podcast. We've been going since October of 2017. Uh, we are basically approaching 150 episodes, so there's plenty of backlog for people who would like to go back and and hear some of our. Our old takes on whiskey, as well as some fledgling bourbon drinkers as we kind of grow up in the world and, and everything. Now, everything's really kind of developed into being not just about the, the bourbon industry itself, but also the community that is behind it. And it's kind of this, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a warm and fuzzy I take uh, when we talk about the community, but uh, we, we do take the time to basically uh, you all do your your whiskey reviews in the middle of your episodes. And um, we do that, but kind of for an hour, an hour and a half, um, a, along with the news and everything. Um, but the, the, the great thing about it is that I've met so many fun people, so many incredible people, uh, over the past three years. And, um, you guys are definitely, uh, in there as well. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm just very happy to get to expand the community even further. Well, yeah, man, we're just really pumped to have you here. You know, if you had to get super reductionistic about it, Perry, sure. like, who would you say is your target audience? Who's listening to your podcast? Because, you know, Brad and I, we talk about this sometimes. But people tune into our podcast and, and they don't know what to expect. And I think a lot of who we're going for in our audience is people who may not have a huge background in whiskey. You know, when Brad and I started this, we liked bourbon a lot, but we didn't have any of the language. We were not certified bourbon stewards or anything like that. <laughs> so when people come to our show, we want them to know, hey, this is for the everyday consumer. That's why we have the price component in our reviews. So do you feel like, you know, you're you're in that category or is it the more kind of educated whiskey drinker that that gravitates to your show? You know, we we kind of toe the line between the two uh, because we are taking the time to talk about history and we're taking the time to also talk about the, the industry news. You know, that that is definitely appealing to those who might have a little bit more insight as to what's going on in the world of bourbon and whiskey at large. But also, as we are reviewing on our show as well, we do what you guys uh, also are doing by including a, a price segment or a value segment, however you want to, however you want to look at it. And so, in in that way, people are coming at it from multiple walks of life and, and multiple standpoints. So, uh, you know, I, I think the the bourbon drinker kind of at large is who we are who we are looking to uh, to bring into the fold, as it were. Um, so pretty much anybody who's listening to your reviews here on the show and finding some uh, some insight and info from it, uh, that would be our show's demographic, pretty much. I, I've, I've been saying this for a while now. There is room for everybody at the table. There's There shouldn't just be one bourbon podcast. There shouldn't just be one film podcast. I mean... Not everybody's going to love Toy Story to the point that you all did, um, but... Oh, <laughs> oh. sensing a little bit of oh. a digression? Oh, no, 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 not at all. Toy Story is one of my all-time <laughs> favorite movies. My point is just that, you know, sometimes it's nice to hear the other side. Absolutely. 
what sort of monster has an other side to the opinion Toy Story is great? <laughs> I, I think you're getting a little nitpicky here with me, Brad. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Bob's normally the nitpicky one. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, I'm just trying. I'm, I'm generalizing my point a little bit. but Well, Perry, it is great to have you on board. Let's get into talking about this movie a little bit. And I, the first thing I want to talk about, even before we hit our favorite segment, Brad Explains, is just kind of like the cultural response to this movie in 2020. Because I remember growing up hearing about this movie as this classic of comedy and people really, really respecting it. And so I watched it, you know, at a pretty young age, like we've already talked about. And, you know, I liked it, but I didn't quite get it. And then The Office hit. And then, you know, the cringe comedy and the, the mockumentary style have really become kind of comedy's biggest thing in this day and age. And I think the crazy thing is that the studio that produced this movie, MGM, has been so possessive with it. Like, it's not on any streaming platform, and it hasn't been for the longest time. I feel like if they were a little bit more open with showing it to people, this is the kind of thing that would be right up the alley of people our age who are constantly watching reruns of The Office. And yet, like, I don't feel like a lot of people that I know have seen this film, especially people my age. Yeah, Bob, this is one of those movies that, A, I had never seen before, and B, I hadn't heard of until one of our My Favorite Movie segments from a while ago, uh, when one of our guests talked about This is Spinal Tap as one of their favorite movies. So it's something that I was very unaware of until recently. In my uh, scope of things, I, I have been aware of this movie for a fair fair portion of my life, and, and a lot of that is, interestingly enough, coming from... I my my dad who I have adapted adopted rather a lot of my uh, my loves in this world from baseball movies bourbon uh, guitar music and hearing him quote this movie for so long I always kind of had this um, kind of a voyeuristic approach to what this movie actually could be and and really kind of going into it with uh, with rose colored glasses in a way that I I don't I don't normally like to go into media with, but there was this anticipation the first time that I watched it. And I believe I watched it for the first time in high school, probably about the age of 15 or 16, if I'm remembering correctly. And and just thinking that it was one of the absolute funniest things in the world. And and it really did set me up to your po- your your point there, Bob. It did kind of set me up for this love of the mockumentary, whether it's The Office or, or, or Parks and Rec. Um, but when you when you watch it, you definitely see where all those seeds are being planted for these shows. And, and you know, I, I think even without Spinal Tap, without Best in Show, a show like Arrested Development couldn't happen. Yeah. And then in turn, you know, uh, The Office and, and Parks and Rec couldn't happen. And then, you know, because it then becomes part of... Um, the the general acceptance for this great form of comedy, people wouldn't actually be getting into this field and they wouldn't actually be producing uh, such wonderful comedic endeavors in the way that they have been over the past 10, 20 years. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we've arrived at the point where we need to get into Brad Explains. Brad, you've already said that you hadn't heard of this movie until it came up on our show. You hadn't seen it before. So this was your first time watching This is Spinal Tap. For those in our audience who haven't seen it before, We have this segment that we call Brad Explains, where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time, and that is the case today. So, Brad, could you give our listeners a spoiler-filled review of This Is Spinal Tap? 
This is Spinal Tap is a movie about a documentary uh, filmmaker named Marty DeBurgey, and he follows an English rock band named Spinal Tap on their final American tour. And as they go across the country, they slowly realize that they are nowhere near as popular as they used to be. Um, and they finally ha- land with one last hit called Animal Sex Farm, I think. <laughs> Sex Farm? Sex Farm? <laughs> that makes it huge in Japan. And so they find themselves uh, re-emerging from their cocoons as a new <laughs> band in Japan. Wow. And it's beautiful, and there's all sorts of references to people like Yoko Ono, you know, the Beatles in general, just everything that you could imagine it making fun of from, like, 70s and 80s rock, it makes fun of. And I I don't know what else there is to say. Like, like it's a mockumentary. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Office? It's pretty much that, making fun of musicians. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to use the words The Office a hundred times in this episode because that's really my frame of reference or my point of reference for comparing to this film. But in the same way that if you're just describing The Office as somebody, you would really just say it's a fake documentary about the everyday lives of people who work in an office building and the manager is an idiot. And that's pretty much that's pretty <laughs> much the summary. This is the story of a band that is waning in popularity that go on a U.S. tour and all the pitfalls that befall them on this tour from hell. And it's just it's so accurate. And so many tropes about the music industry came up out of this movie. It's so influential. You know, if you do any research on it, you'll find that rock musicians like by and large love this movie, but they hate watching it because it hits so close to home to so much of what they've all gone through. So, yeah, guys, let's get into talking about the movie a little bit. And you know, I want to start like right at the beginning. The very first thing you see is this kind of weird intro from Rob Reiner, who's the director of the film, but he's playing this documentarian named Marty DeBerge. And he introduces himself and he, he's talking to the camera about, you know, I followed Spinal Tap on tour and I was filming them. And it's very much done in the style of an old documentary. Like, when we watch documentaries on Netflix now, they're so polished and so well-produced. But this movie really does follow the pattern of documentaries that you would see in the late 70s, early 80s. In fact, if you are a fan of rock music and you've seen any of those sort of documentaries, there's one that came out in the late 70s called The Last Waltz. And it was a movie made Mm -hmm. by Martin Scorsese. And it's very clear, like, right from the beginning that Rob Reiner is parodying Martin Scorsese. Like, the name is almost the same. He has the same kind of beard. And so it kind of sets you up if you're like clued into what's going on, that this is going to be not just a parody, but it's really going to mimic movies like that. It it did remind me quite a bit, too, of um, Dazed and Confused, the uh, the Led Zeppelin Zeppelin documentary. Excuse me. Um, I believe was that Dazed and Confused or was it The Song Remains the Same? I can't I can't remember. Anyway, there there is that one popular one that came out um, towards the end of Led Zeppelin's uh, career um, where they are. They're being followed around just kind of in their their day to day in between stage lives. But it's being framed by the these live performances. And by the way, the the, the thing that I love about these live performances with Spinal Tap, there's such an obvious segue between scenes and and between uh, different parts of the story but it's so funny because it works so well it doesn't it doesn't over impede it doesn't uh, like heavy-handedly tell you what's going to happen or what's just happened it just it seems to be that perfect kind of segue 
Um, and, and I think that that's interestingly enough, sorry to get off a little bit uh, on a tangent, but I think that's one of the things that works so well um, be, because they are so comedic with their segues. I think it just works so perfectly in the context of this movie. Well, and even the the way that those concerts are filmed, like there's there's part of me as a younger person that did not grow up in the 70s and 80s, you know, enough to remember these types of things. Like there's a party that wonders like there's like there's no way this stuff really happened. Right. But like if you go back and look at the types of concerts that were being thrown in the 80s, the stuff that they're showing on Spinal Tap is like pretty normal. Like, Absolutely. It's not too out of this world. And so the way they capture the inanity of 80s hair metal <laughs> is just perfect in this film. Yeah. And guys, the thing that I really appreciated about this was that even though the songs are funny, they're not funny because the lyrics are like so far out. They're they're actually <laughs> they're funny because in some ways they are so similar to the kind of like the kind of music that they were preceding. Like, it blows my mind that it was only a couple years after this movie, at the max, that uh, Def Leppard comes out with uh, Pour Some Sugar On Me, which I think five years before that would seem like a ridiculous song, and it is a ridiculous song. But when I listen to Spinal Tap singing Big Bottom and Sex Farm, it's really not that far out of the realm of possibility to imagine that, like, Def Leppard was actually influenced by Spinal Tap. So, like, these songs are funny, yes, but they're actually super well made when you think about it. Man, I love that idea of of Def Leppard in like the the inspirations section on their Wikipedia <laughs> or even on the thank yous on their first album. Sex it's got farm. spinal spinal tap on their sex farm. Oh my gosh, that would absolutely just kill me. That, I I love I love to live in that universe, and I think that's where I'm going to stay. Now. <laughs> and th- and I think that's the beauty of a well done mockumentary is that you can actually believe that the subject of the movie could be in the real world. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why The Office did so well is because while, yes, for the most part, some of the characters are a little bit far out there, all of us know somebody who is like Dwight Schrute or Jim Halpert. Like, it just makes sense that some of those people are in our lives. And the same thing is true of Spinal Tap. I I can't say that almost any of the conversations they have wouldn't have happened at some point in reality in the 1980s rock scene. Yeah, and and it's only slightly exaggerated. And that's the thing that's so great about it. Like that very first scene where the filmmaker Marty is sitting down with the band in that garden and just kind of talking about their history together. And they cut back and play their songs from the 1960s. And then you get introduced to this running joke about, like, why have you had so many drummers? <laughs> and, and they keep telling all these ridiculous stories about how all their drummers have died. And it's a great it's a great kind of intro to the fact that this whole movie, literally the whole movie was ad-libbed. Like, they did not have a script. They had a general outline, and they just let the actors ad-lib the whole thing. But when you start hearing them say things like, you know, he died in a bizarre gardening accident and the authorities said (laughs) best to leave this one unsolved. Like they're just they're so funny because they're almost plausible. Yeah. And he was replaced by uh, Stumpy Joe. Eric Stumpy Joe. And what happened to Stumpy Joe? Well, uh, it's not a very pleasant story, but uh, he he died. uh, He choked on uh, the, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. It was actually, uh, away. It was actually someone else's vomit. 
It's not exactly. <laughs> you know, there's no real. Well, they can't yeah, prove whose vomit it was. They uh, never. They don't have uh, facilities in Scotland Yard to, to print that. You can't really dust for vomit. Well, it it feels almost like a mishmash of like Monty Python and what we do in the shadows, and you just oh my gosh, you yes. just have all these weird oddities, but it it just works perfectly. Like you know, Bob and I were talking about the movie you know a day or two ago. And I told him, I was like, Bob, I don't know if I want to give this movie like a nine out of 10 or a five out of 10. Like, the, like, <laughs> like it's, it, it's, it's so much of its own little niche that like, it doesn't really fit in with other movies, but it doesn't care. It doesn't want to fit in. It just wants to be Spinal Tap. It is, it is unabashedly its own self. Yeah. It's its own identity. It is not trying to... And, and and yes, they they we are talking about how they are taking influence from from other media, but it, it, at the same time, they're not trying to to be anybody else. They're just trying to make something really good and something that clearly they wanted to be very proud of. And I think that you know, Bob, to to your point about these songs, everything feels so finely crafted. Yeah, and I think that's what you to your point. It does feel like these characters could exist in a real world setting because everything's so finely tuned. Everything yeah. there's so much attention to detail, and you know, a hundred percent kudos to the the producers and the the creators behind this film because you know, it, it, the 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 more time that you would put into something like this, the more well received it's going to be. And you know, because it is now a cultural icon, it you know clearly they they put the time in that they needed to uh, to make this stick in our in the back of our minds. Well, and I think that there's there's a couple of things that are clearly going on that make this movie work like internally. And the the main thing is that the people playing the characters are not judging the characters like as they play them. They're playing it deadly seriously. They're playing it straight. They're not in on the joke. And that's the only reason that the jokes work is that these people for the people in the movie Everything that's happening is like the most dramatic thing that could possibly happen. But they're not winking at the camera as they do it. It's not like, hey, everybody, we know this is a joke. You're they're playing it as real life. And what makes it so funny is the ridiculousness of their lives. But they don't know that. And I think that, you know, that's what the best of these sort of mockumentary shows and movies do is they don't let their cast in on the joke in that way. They don't let the cast ham it up and wink at the camera. It could be really funny things happening, and yet you have to play it straight or it's not going to work. And they do such a good job of kind of respecting those characters in that way. I have I have one note here, um, Brad, kind of to your point as well about not knowing uh, how to actually rate this movie. This I, I can't remember exactly who it was that said this, but uh, it's such a fine line between stupid and clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great summary of the whole movie. Yeah, I, I and think, I think that's why I think that's why I took it down too because it felt so it like a like a commentary on on the movie itself. Well, and Bob, with with this kind of self important style that the actors engage in, where they don't act like this is funny, it's all very real to them. I think the perfect scene that illustrates that is the turning it up to 11 scene. Yeah. <laughs> when, you know, he tells them, he's like, well, I had this, I had this, you know, amp custom made to go up to 11. Because, you know, what happens when you get to 10? That's like it. You're done. If you can see. Yeah. The numbers all go to 
11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11. And then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most, most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. And I think my favorite part of this movie is Rob Reiner's commentary on everything that they do. Oh, my God. Like, he's he's standing there and he goes, well, why don't you just have him, you know, change the 10 to be a little bit higher and that way it is it is 11. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he doesn't, like, he can't comprehend it, though. He's like, no, but these go to 11. Yeah, and I think it, it points out the absurdity of a lot of these rock stars that they get so far removed from normal human interactions that like their brains just don't work the same way that normal human brains do. You know what I mean? Well, and that's uh, you use the best possible term to describe it, Brad. It's this self-importance, right? That they think they're doing something that's like earth-shattering and history-changing. And my favorite scene in the whole movie that illustrates that is this really great little like one-minute scene with Rob Reiner and Christopher Guest's char- uh, character Nigel, and Nigel's playing piano, and it's this really beautiful, sad <laughs> melody, and he's walking him through it, and, and he goes on and on about like, yeah, I'm working on this piece. It's in the key of D minor, which is people the instantly key. <laughs> people instantly weep when they hear it. Yeah, well, it's part of a uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys really i don't know why but it makes people weep instantly to play a it's a horn part it's very pretty you know just simple lines intertwining you know very much like i'm really influenced by mozart and bach and it's sort of in between though it's really it's like a mark piece really it's, what do you call this well this piece is called uh, lick my love pump <laughs> and that's that's the punchline and it goes to the next scene but it so perfectly illustrates that like he he is so severely limited in his not his musical abilities but like his his musical kind of worldview that he thinks of everything in this you know early 80s proto hair metal way of everything has to be sexualized and he's writing this beautiful piece and at the end of the day he's still going to just call it lick my love pump like it, it you- really illustrates that self-importance do you guys feel like that notion is a little bit outdated in the the mus- musical cultural scene at large? Because in some ways, I, I I think that with the advent of something like social media, in a way we're kind of being exposed to, whether it's uh, true or not, the humanity behind these people who are playing music and being creative and creating art for us. Uh, and and during a period like the 80s, we have these larger-than-life characters, and um, they're gods at what they do, and they just have this, you know, shroud of mystery and etherealness behind them. But now it feels like people are a lot more broken down in terms of, you know, who they are in the public. And, and I personally feel like this image that has been presented in Spinal Tap 
we don't really have that in the 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 common understanding of what a celebrity is anymore, or at least musician wise. I think it's a good point. Like they've been demythologized in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, I think this is a really good conversation. And I think it's really funny that we we got so deep on a movie like Spinal Tap. Uh, but when we come <laughs> back from our break, I really do want to get into talking about some of these performances, how Rob Reiner did as a director. Do you think that he really hit the nail on the head with his documentary style here? And we'll get into maybe some of our favorite scenes, favorite quotes, things like that. But before we get there, what do you guys say we try this fighting cock? I'm down for it. Let's get to it. Right, so today we are checking out Fighting Cock. This is a brand from Heaven Hill Distillery. Uh, it is a no-age-stated bourbon. Uh, in the past, it was six-year-age-stated. They say that they still blend the older stuff in with it, but so we, we know it's at least four years of age, and it's a blend of a bunch of different, you know, aged whiskeys. This bourbon clocks in at 103 proof, and from what I can tell, they launched this brand to be a direct competitor with Wild Turkey 101. And I think that the name, true. the name, even is kind of a riff on that. Like, you know, it's, it, they're both foul themed. It's like wild Turkey and fighting cock. And so they, they have positioned themselves as the antagonists of wild Turkey with this. I'm actually really excited to get into drinking this one, Brad. This is a favorite among bourbon drinkers, especially in the Kentucky area. It's a pretty cheap, you know, inexpensive bourbon, uh, but it drinks really hot at 103 proof. Yeah, I, I'm excited to get into it as well. As I nose it, I, I'm getting a lot of corn, a little bit of banana, and and some kind of vanilla-y tones to it. It's not my favorite nose. To me, it smells a little bit young, hmm. which might just be the corn talking. But uh, it, it's interesting at the very least. Yeah, this is a 75% corn mash bill, or at least it was as of 2018. Uh, so I, I'm not surprised that you're picking up on that corn. I feel like I'm getting a lot of things on the nose, and yet in in a weird way, it's not complex. Like I, I'm picking up a lot of oak, a lot of vanilla. Yeah, I'm getting that corn you're talking about, and yet like none of them is really the star of the show. It does seem kind of muddled in a way. I don't know if that makes sense, Brad. No, it really does. Perry, what are you picking up on the nose on this? So interestingly enough, I've had this bottle open for a little bit over a year. I think that it might have had a little bit more time to kind of mellow out. Um, based on what you guys are saying. For me, there, there's kind of a, and it's really, really jumping out at me, but a, a creme brulee note, which I, I'm, I'm finding to be really enjoyable and, and mm. really interesting. Um, I, I want to point out something too, uh, going back to the, the, the corn note that you're, you're picking up there, Brad, and, and also Bob to kind of put an asterisk on what you were saying as well. Heaven Hills mash bill is, uh, typically their, their typical bourbon mash bill is 78% corn, 10% rye and 12% mar malted barley. So it's understandable even at 78%, 75% even why you would be picking up so much on the corn. I think the corn is a little bit more present on the palate than it is the nose. And I know I'm probably jumping a little bit ahead here. Um, but I think that the nose is one of the more inviting parts uh, of this whiskey itself. All right. So guys, what, what kind of a score would you give this out of 10? 
I think I'm sitting at a six and a half, Bob. It's not my favorite nose that I've had, but it's pleasant. It's not offensive. But I think my main critique would be, I don't know if it makes me like really excited for what's to come. Yeah, I get that. Perry, how about you? I'm going to give it a seven. Um, I, I I think that as as I've been able to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it, there are some kind of really dark chocolatey notes that I'm picking up on the nose as well. Yes, the sweetness is one of the more overpowering flavors that you're going to find there, but I think overall it's it's really quite pleasant, so I, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I don't mind this at all. I, it is a little bit alcohol forward for me, and Perry, that might be the difference between our bottle and yours having mellowed for a year. Sure, um, sure. You know, I think the, the note, if there is a dominant note on this for me, Brad, for you, it was corn. For me, it's the oak coming through a little bit, which I am surprised at at four to six years. Like I said, nothing on this is bad. It just doesn't seem like it really has a star of the show here. And so for me, it's just going to be a six and a half. Uh, but guys, what do you say we take a sip? Well, that's really, really nice. Yeah, that's pleasant. Yeah, it's smooth on the palate. There's a lot of sweetness in the front. There's like a tiny foretaste of heat that is warning you about as to what's about to happen mm-hmm. uh, as, <laughs> as you finish. Absolutely. But overall, like I would say it's very enjoyable. Um, I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the taste. Yeah, I think I'll give it a seven on the taste. Again, like it's it has that sort of vague corn sweetness that you were hinting at from the nose, Brad. It's not a complex whiskey. It's a pretty easy drinker. I think it does drink hot. Like, you're right. When you go to swallow it, the alcohol really makes itself known. I don't want to jump too far ahead to the finish, but the flavors that are left on your palate are not, like, overwhelmingly sweet. They're not really fruity or complex in that way. I don't even get any really sort of dark sugar notes. It's really just kind of the alcohol and the oak that that stay behind for me on the finish. So, you know, it's a pretty good bourbon. It just doesn't really seem to have any defining characteristics for me in terms of like having a dominant note. So, yeah, I'll go ahead and give it a seven on the taste. And I'll give it a 7.5. I think that it's it, it, it really is a strong competitor with Wild Turkey 101, which, as we were talking about before, it was introduced to be just that. In this case, I do prefer Wild Turkey 101 just ever so slightly to this. But if, if Wild Turkey 101 all of a sudden disappeared and I was left with Fighting Cock, I wouldn't be terribly upset about it. But I, I do want to echo kind of what you were saying, Bob. I think that the finish is a little bit lacking. I just don't think that it's providing enough to where I get overly excited about the next sip. And 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 uh, spoilers, my finish score is going to be a little bit lower. Uh, but 7.5 on the palate, it's good. It's not uh, where I kind of would like for it to be, but I do think that it is enjoyable. And I also think this could really hold up well in a cocktail. I think this is kind of one of the unsung heroes that uh, we, we could wind up seeing maybe in the next couple of years if people are looking for the next big thing, if they're looking for something that you know is going to throw somebody off when they go to a bar and they order an old-fashioned or a Manhattan and they see fighting cock as one of the ingredients. I think that it really could hold up well. I think it could provide a really good bourbon-forward cocktail note. But even on its own, I think it holds up really, really well. I think I'm actually going to... I'm pretty close to you, Bob. I'm going to give it a six on the finish. I think just enough of the sweetness is still sitting on the front of my tongue 
that while it literally burns away any shred of sanity in my throat, um, <laughs> I, I'm still kind of enjoying that little bit that's still on the palate. So, I, you know, I'm okay with the finish. It, it is a hot finish, though, I will warn you. I, I'm, I'm going to give a... <laughs> maybe unsurprisingly the the lowest score here on the finish i'm actually going to give it a five um i i just don't think that it, it as i was saying prior that it is inviting enough to where i want to go back for another drink of it but at the same time the palette is really where this one shines for me this is really what's carrying the weight of this whiskey um and and the finish is just i just am <laughs> left wanting more with this finish and you know it, it is it is very even keel it's very middle of the road and five is about as much as i think i can give it on the finish here all right so that takes us to overall balance that's where we talk about nose taste and finish all put together I- i'm gonna give this one a six out of ten like it, it there was nothing about it that wowed me in the first place and then i think the finish really kind of took it down a peg uh because it didn't it didn't present itself as being as harsh as it ended up being on the finish. Uh, so it's just a six for me. I'm going to go ahead and give it a five on balance. I, I think that wow. the flavor is somewhat matched with the nose, but the finish is just so harsh and there's so much burn going on that it, it really is a bit of a roller coaster ride for me. And so it, it's okay. It's not a bad balance. It's just not the best balance whiskey. I'm actually going to give it a seven. I, I think that it's... It again is being carried over by its nose and its palate. Um, yes, the the finish is definitely lacking, but I think that if you're looking at what's happening up front, that is making it for a really enjoyable experience. So it's hard for me to give it anything lower than a seven. It, would I like to see more balance? Absolutely, but it, it is still satisfying. It's still pleasant, and uh, seven's where I'm going to land. All right, so that takes us to overall value. Now, this bourbon uh, can be had pretty much anywhere in the country for under $20. On average, I, I think I spent $15.99 for this in Kentucky. So we're going to call it $16. I think that's a really good price. But here's my dilemma, guys. Like, am I rating it based on the fact that this is a $15, 103-proof bourbon, which is a great value for whatever the quality might be, or am I questioning in you know to myself, would I spend $15, $16 on this? Because I think the, the latter answer is no. I don't really think that I want to run out and buy another bottle of this. And yet I can recognize that at this price point, there's really nothing else that's competing with it on the market. So in a way, it is a super good value. Maybe just not my cup of tea. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'll, I'll come at this from a couple different schools of view. So... As I was talking about before, as we were talking about before, there's Turkey 101, which for basically about $5 more, $4, $3, if you're, if you're lucky enough to find it kind of marked down, um, you're getting a bourbon that is a little bit more well-refined, uh, going to be slightly older. Typically, what goes into the bottle is around eight years old with Wild Turkey 101 uh, and sits pretty firmly, really, at $20. So for, for just a little bit more, I think that you're getting more bang for your buck with Turkey 101. But at the same time, I know that this the, the proof point on this is really kind of what's carrying it in in the value realm. But if you look at the other products that are being offered by Heaven Hill, 
these bottled and bond products that usually will run you $10, $11, $12 and sit on the bottom shelf. JTS Brown, JW Dant, even Evan Williams bottled and bond, which is kind of their upper tier with uh, their cheaper bottled and bonds at about $14 to $15. Uh, I think that those qualities are a little bit higher than Fighting Cock. So it's it's by no means bottom of the barrel with pardon the pun um bottom of the barrel with the 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 pricing scheme uh but i think that it still has something to to, something for it to reach for um so i'm gonna give it a 6.5 on the on the value yeah guys i'm right there with you this is a six for me you guys have pretty much said everything there is to say about value. It, it's not a bad value. If you have an extra 16, 17 bucks that you want to spend on what I would say is at the very least a somewhat unique whiskey, you know, in the fact that it manages to both be very sweet and yet very fiery at the same time, I'd say go get it. Go get some. Go try some. Share it with your friends. It's an interesting whiskey. Uh, I would recommend it. Uh, what about you guys? Yeah, I mean, sure. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, not going to give it an enthusiastic recommendation. So, you know, I would give it a six on the value as well, Brad. That would put me out to a 31 out of 50. And I think that score kind of speaks for my recommendation. Like, it's above average. There's nothing that really offends me about it. But I'm also not really going to be singing its praises, you know? So, I don't know. Where does that put you guys out numerically? Bob, I think for the first time ever, you and I have come out to the exact same score. I'm right there at a 31 out of 50. And I'm actually just slightly higher than the both of you. I'm at 33 out of 50. Um, And I I think that, you know, just kind of closing thoughts with this one. Yes, it is not the, the most inviting of bourbon pours that you can find, but I do think that it's something that you can break out for people and say... When was the last time that you had this? Or have you ever had this? And then you go into its history. Mm. You go into why it is priced where it is. The proof, everything about it is for a reason. And with that in mind, I just think that it's it's got something to be said. It's got something to be offered to the layman or to to those who are uninitiated. But I, it's just, I, w- I would prefer other things over it. So in that 33 range i can't i can't argue with my my review of it yeah well there you have it folks perry has said it all this is why we bring him on the podcast he does the heavy lifting for us we we don't need to say anything else so why don't we get back into talking about this is spinal tap So that was Fighting Cock, a bourbon that we all kind of liked and we're all also kind of meh on. So, you know, if you got an extra 16 bucks laying around, go ahead and pick it up. Like Perry said, if nothing else, it'll make a heck of a good cocktail for you. Hey, a fighting cocktail. Ah, there it is. We found it. 
<laughs> I think we're done. I think we're done with the episode. Boys. Yeah. So All right. Bye, bye, everybody. Now. It was been great. <laughs> All right. So, guys, let's talk about the performances in this movie, specifically the three main band members who are played by Harry Shearer as the bassist, Christopher Guest as the lead guitarist, Nigel, and Michael McKeon as the lead singer and guitarist, David St. Hubbins. I think they're all fantastic. If I had to be honest, I think Harry Shearer isn't really given a lot to do because uh, Michael McKeon and Christopher Guest take up so much screen time. But this time around, I was really struck by two things, and that is that I think Christopher Guest is the comedic genius of the two. And that's not to say anything bad about Michael McKeon's uh, comedic chops, but Christopher Guest is so quick-witted uh, and, and gets in so many one-liners. But at the same time, I feel like Michael McKeon's acting abilities, and especially his singing voice, he sold that performance so, so well. You know, a lot of people listening to this podcast will really only know Michael McKeon uh, from his performance in the first three seasons of Better Call Saul, which he was fantastic on, by the way. Wow. But he's so, so different here. And I just, I could not get over how good he was because legitimately, he has a fantastic voice. I, I want to talk about Harry Shearer, though. I, I, I am really taken this time around on my my most recent viewing of how much it seems like he is is providing the glue that is holding together these comedic scenes i hmm. think that he is kind of the unsung hero uh, of, of of this movie in in you know if he were to you know provide it some kind of uh, title if they were going to go to the oscars like best supporting actor i think that he he definitely falls into uh into that category um in a way where he's he's not really impeding on anybody else but he is definitely finding a way to really support everybody else's performances and and the the way that they carry those scenes well, he really takes on, you know, the real life role of the bassist. Like, don't <laughs> don't screw anything up. You know, the bass line pocket. keeps yep. keeps the entire song together. Just stay in your lane. He he really embodied that role perfectly. It, it, and and I would agree, but I I would say he has some of the funniest stuff in this movie too. <laughs> the scene where he's going back and forth through the metal detector <laughs> and she, and she's waving the wand over him and it starts going off. I think that might have been the fu- the hardest I laughed the entire movie. Get, getting stuck in the pod, too, while they were on stage. Oh. Absolutely broke and the, me. And, and the roadie pulls out the blowtorch. <laughs> Dude, literally watching the the... I think it's like three different things. I can't remember the third one, but watching the, the roadie help... Christopher Guest get back up after he's like folded over himself. <laughs> that, that moment and and you know it's funny we we all have this I think that I am really the embodiment of that roadie as well yeah where yep. you know you think that everything's okay and you're just kind of giving that thumbs up like yeah man you go you go and then you all of a sudden realize like oh crap I gotta do my job and like yep. I gotta I gotta support somebody <laughs> All right, guys, so I have to ask then, like, we've we've talked about all these great scenes that we loved. I've talked about my favorite scene. You know, if you had to pick one line from the movie that just sticks with you, I think for me, like, it's it's always going to be the lick my love pump (laughs) uh, punchline. But, like, 
there's so many great like okay so the stonehenge sequence where oh nigel gosh. has asked for this replica model of stonehenge and he accidentally wrote 18 inches tall instead of 18 feet and and the reaction that you get after the fact where David St. Hubbins is saying, I do not for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. <laughs> like, it's just it's <laughs> such a great line. <laughs> So guys, if there's one line that you have to you that just sticks with you, what would it be? I think for me, the, my favorite line comes from uh, Harry Shearer when he when he says that you know we're very lucky in the band that we have two visionaries, David and Nigel. They're like they're like poets, you know, Shelley and Byron. <laughs> they're two distinct <laughs> kinds of visionaries, like fire and ice. I feel like my role in this band is to be somewhere in the middle of that. Kind of, kind of like lukewarm water. <laughs> so then there's also the lines that are like total throwaways, like you know, the cover of their album "Smell the Glove" was a huge controversy, and then the record label changes it to just be a jet black album cover. And the commentary they're all giving, where <laughs> you hear one of them say, "It's like a black mirror," and then the other one, the other one, Nigel goes, "You, know, you asked the question, how much more black could this be?" And the answer is none, none more black. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Bob, I think I'm going to change mine. I think when uh, when he, when Marty DeBurgi says. So, so when you're playing up there, you feel like a preserved moose on stage. <laughs> and he just goes, yeah. <laughs> totally agrees. Oh, it's just, it's just it's so perfect. relatable. It's so relatable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and again, that's the thing about this movie is it spawned so many things that have just entered the, the kind of lexicon of musicians now. The turn it up to 11. You know, when they get lost backstage and they just keep saying, hello, Cleveland, hello, Cleveland. <laughs> That's where that comes from. And guys, I, you know, I, I think we could go on and on talking about our favorite quotes, but it's time for us to kind of give this movie a score. And for me, Brad, I've gone back and forth on this because at first this doesn't seem like the kind of movie that you would give a 10 out of 10 to. And yet the more I think about it, it's just it's a tight hour and 20 minutes. You're in, you're out. Every joke lands. The story really works, and I think part of the reason the story works is that they do the same principle that you see in the American version of The Office, where you really get this kind of very earned, heartwarming ending. Nigel comes back to the band, David, you know, invites him on stage, and they just play, and they're happy. And it's this idea that, like, yeah, they might suck, and yeah, they might be, like, falling out of fashion with the masses, but darn it, they love each other, and they're happy doing this. And I think it really sends you out on a super positive note. This is like the best office episodes and and it's feature length. And so for me, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. I loved this movie. Bob, I'm, I'm so happy that you gave it a 10 out of 10. I, I feel like getting those from you is like squeezing an orange that has, <laughs> that I just, I, you just, and then when you do give tens out of tens, it's to movies like ET. And I just don't know like where you're coming from. Yeah. So you know what? I'm happy about this. I will say this movie has redeemed any hope that I had of the 80s being a somewhat decent decade. 
because uh, honestly, from Back to the Future to E.T., I've been really disappointed with the 80s as a film decade. Mm-hmm. But with all that being said, I don't know if I can give it a 10 out of 10, but when I look at it, uh, the goal of a movie is to entertain people. And this, for for what it sets out to be, I think that this might be one of the most perfect mockumentaries ever made. And so with that in mind, I, Bob, I'm just going to join you. I, I'll give it a 10 out of 10. What the heck? Oh, nice. That's the way That's the way to give a 10 out of 10. Just say, what the heck? <laughs> what What the heck? <laughs> Why not? I guess let's we'll not give... think critically about this. 10 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much how I felt about Vertigo. Yeah. Uh, the Aviator. You know, just what the heck? Give it a 10. <laughs> Perry, how about you, man? I, I I have to echo some of what you all were saying, that it, it does seem to really cut through in a way that has, has not been seen in the, this genre um, for really a, a, a long time. It was defining. It, it created something that everybody else felt like they had to in some way emulate in order to achieve greatness. Does it fall flat a couple of times? Yes, but I think that's just because of what we are, are looking at from a 2020 lens. I think objectively, it is a an extremely funny movie. It is incredibly well-crafted, infinitely rewatchable at this point, too. So I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, especially going back and forth like I have been. Come on, do it. It's Come on. It's a 10 out of 10. That's Let's right. Let's go. It's the, hey. hat, it's the hat trick, the first hat trick on <laughs> film and whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Man, Perry, it has been so, so wonderful to have you on the podcast. I'm so happy that you and Bob have been talking about this for a while and that we finally got you on here. Oh, my gosh. Thank you all so much uh, for this episode and, and talking about a movie that I, uh, uh, you know, truly... I do love. There are a couple of things that, you know, we didn't get into that might be a little bit problematic, as I was saying um, in my review. But overall, it, it's just infinitely enjoyable and, and rewatchable. Um, but if you want to follow up with me personally, I am at Purator1492. The show itself is at My Bourbon Pod. You can listen to our episodes that come out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we are always talking about the newest developments in bourbon, whiskey at large, and having a really good time building a community together um, as we drink bourbon and, and just really enjoy each other's company. Bob and Brad, thank you all so much for having me on. Th- this has been so much fun and and a a, a bit of a nice break. I like uh, you know breaking the mold every now and then and talking about some pop culture stuff instead of just just the news. Yeah, man, we're gonna have to have you back on soon. This was great. I'd love for that. But Film and Whiskey Nation, if you want to get in contact with us about this is Spinal Tap, you can do so by finding us on social media. We are at Film Whiskey Whiskey with an E. Or you can give us a phone call. You can leave us a voicemail in one of two ways. First, give us a call at 216-800-5923. Or you can leave us a voicemail on our webpage, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Next week, we will be back talking about a movie that Brad and I just love so dearly. 2018's Bohemian Rhapsody. So please join us for that next week for the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.